0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation. Today we feature BYU professor Craig Harleen, who has written a wonderfully insightful and sometimes hilarious mission memoir titled Way Below the Angels, the pretty clearly troubled, but not even close to tragic, confessions of a real live Mormon missionary. This book far exceeds any other mission memoir I've read in its honesty, and yet it manages to keep a lighthearted tone that is always engaging. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider going online to dialogjournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And while you're there, why not make a tax-deductible donation? Every bit helps. This presentation was originally delivered to the Miller Eccles study group at our home in Orange County, California on October 24, 2014. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Craig Harleen who writes and teaches about religious life in Western Europe during the Reformation which tends to make people's eyes glaze over a little bit but He writes, and and I understand, teaches in such an engaging way that it's accessible to a lot of people. And in doing that, he has managed to research almost every year in archives and libraries in Belgium, the Netherlands, France, England, and Sweden. And some of his books have been quite well-received, featured on the Today Show, Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood, National Public Radio and um, dozens of radio and television programs in the United States and even Western Europe. So we have quite a celebrity here. Some of his books include Conversations. It was selected as a top ten book in religion by Publishers Weekly. Sunday, sort of a history of Sunday that we were talking a little bit about at dinner and I thought was really interesting, listed among the top five books on Sunday and the Sabbath by Christianity Today. So these are books that are recognized not just in the LDS community, but... in in the historic and religious community at large, and A Bishop's Tale, an editor's choice book at Amazon.com, Miracles at the Jesus Oak, named the top 10 book in religion in 2003. I found reading Way Below the Angels, which is his memoir of his mission in Belgium, to be just fascinating because there was so much of it that rang true to me. I read a lot of mission memoirs that don't necessarily ring true. But I served my mission in Norway and I experienced many of the same things that he writes about and so I highly recommend it. I think you'll find it interesting and engaging and funny. love the way that he refers to the missionaries as local businessmen because they all dressed like local businessmen. <laughs> Although in Europe in Belgium, none of the local <laughs> businessmen actually dress that way, so they actually dress like CIA agents. But I'm not sure that's what the church intended. Anyway, with that, uh, I'll turn the time over to Dr. Harley. Thanks.
1: thanks a lot for coming tonight, and thanks to the board for inviting me, and the first thing for having this in their home. I think it's the first time I've ever preached with a collection plate going around, and I really liked it. <laughs> a few years ago, I published a book called Conversions. It's often called Conversations by people. Oh, yeah, yeah, But it's conversion, but people often do it when they see that. I don't yeah. know why. Anyway, it was called Conversions, Two Family Stories from the Reformation and Modern America. And the topic was how conversion affects family relationships. And I realized this was a problem that emerged in the seven, in, during the Reformation in the 16th century. This, people, for the first time, had more than one religion to choose from uh, since the ancient world, really. And I had had enough bad experiences at social events with non-historians, people wondering what in the world you know, I could possibly have to say to people today, studying the Reformation, and I, I tried my best to make that period of time accessible. But for once, I wanted to say what I thought a Reformation story had to do with the modern world. I wanted to say it explicitly. So instead of just kind of implying and telling the story in a way that people could read, I wanted to say, here's what I think this story is about. So I told the 17th century story that I just happened upon in an archive when I found the journal of this 21-year-old young man named Jacob Rolandus, who's from the Netherlands. And in this story of this journal that he kept in 1654, he describes his conversion, which took place over an entire year. And he wrote half of it in code. I should have brought a slide of that, because that's always so exciting. But he wrote it in code. And after a few heroic days, I broke the code, and then I realized that the key had been on the cover. But, you know, (laughs) it, it was heroic anyway. I figured it out. And this was a fascinating book. A story, he wrote it in code because he didn't want his father to find out what he was doing. His father was a Reformed preacher, and Jacob was supposed to become a Reformed preacher too. Well, I liked this story. I knew I wanted to write about it, but again, I wanted to say, what did this story, what could it possibly have to do with people today? So I decided, it It felt like a really familiar story, and I realized I would heard this story many times of people converting and upsetting their family. And what more natural topic for someone who'd been a missionary? Because No one converts without upsetting somebody in their family, either their immediate family or their extended family. So it's just a a normal subject. So I decided to tell a story alongside it that was from my own life that had to do with one of my friends from the 1970s who had grown up in an evangelical family in California in Fresno and had converted to Mormonism when he was 22 or 23. And I'd met him uh, a couple years later when he was the young adult president. His parents were furious that he became Mormon. They just could not believe that their intelligent son would do something like that. After about three years as a Mormon, he realized he was gay, and so he quit being Mormon. It just wasn't possible in the 1970s. His parents were so thrilled he was no longer Mormon. (laughs) But then they found out why, you know, and this caused all kinds of new problems. So to me, this story was just like the Reformation story. First of all, because in the beginning, it was a Reformation story. He was leaving his family's religion. You know, what did, what did that do to their relationship? But then it also took that modern twist. He was also leaving something else in his family way. And then it hit me, every generation, every culture has something like this. And so this was the modern twist on the story, you know. His, his, and, and then the whole point of the book was, how did these families deal with this? The 17th century family and the modern family. And so the book really tries to show what the options were, both in the 17th century and today. What were the possibilities? And so I kind of explore and compare these two stories. The reason I tell that is because that was the most personal thing I'd ever written. As, as Morris mentioned, you know, I mostly write about distant old things in the Reformation. But I was in this book. This was my friend. And I talk about my reaction to his, you know, when he came out. And wh- what was I supposed to do with this? I didn't ever, I didn't know that I'd known anyone who was gay, right? When, when I was 28, he, he tells me this. So I'm in this story too. And I think it was after that that I realized, I think I need to write my mission story now. Because I wanted to write that for a long time. I wanted to write it since I was 25 years old. I've been home from my mission for four years. And I would started having this really bad dream that I had to go on another mission. <laughs> and I was really, I was, I was, I didn't know what to make of this. Where was this coming from? Because I knew I'd gotten a lot of good things from going on a mission, including my interest in European religious history. That never would have happened, you know, if just in Fresno. I, if I hadn't gone to Belgium, <laughs> it never would have happened. I was so glad to be studying that. You know, I loved studying uh, religious history in Europe, and. So I felt guilty about having that dream. I felt confused, and I was embarrassed. There was no way I was going to tell anybody I was having a dream like this. I did tell my wife, who didn't understand. She'd been on a mission too, but she just didn't have that dream. She'd had so many good experiences. And so I thought, I need to write this and sort out. I I want to write about this and figure out what's going on, because even by then I realized writing stuff out really helps you sort out some things. But then I was in my Ph.D. program, and I didn't get around to it, and I started writing other things, and so I just kept putting it off. But in the meantime, I kept talking to people who had been missionaries, and I was asking them about their experiences, and I realized we had a lot of common experiences, as Morris said, even if they didn't go to Europe on a mission. And after about 10 or 15 years, I finally got up enough nerve, so I mean, it took this long for me to ask if other people had ever had this dream, because I was so embarrassed about it. And it turns out most of the people I asked had had the dream too. So I realized I was onto something here. This is, it, when it's happening this way, and it's also often going in the same way, the dream. Uh, and In the sense that you, know, you get a little older, you have kids, you're married, and, and somehow they're involved too all of a sudden. You know, when I was single and I had the dream, it was just me. But I got older, then all of a sudden my family's involved, I had to leave them and go, or they went with me, but I had to do all the work you know uh, and, it was, and you never said no. And this it kept going like this with everybody I talked to. And the, the pattern was the same. So you know you're on some kind of cultural unconscious or subconscious when this pattern is following and really the psychologist needs to, to look into this and explore it and you know w- much more expertise than I could. but I certainly could notice the patterns. And so I thought, you know if other people are having this too, um, what does this say? That's another reason I wanted to write the book. I felt like, there had been surprisingly little written about missions in, in, in the way, in the sense of experience. There were millions of books on how to be a great missionary, right? Just full and telling you exactly how to do it. And I read these myself, you know? And there were also books by people who were willing to tell the experience who had been become disaffected from the religion and had hated their experience and, you know, willing to tell all. And they mostly wrote that as a kind of scandalous expose. And I I didn't think, I I didn't mean to say that the experience of either side was unreal. There were probably people who went on a mission who had an absolutely affirming experience. They fit completely into mission culture and everything that, you know, all the ideals that were held up, they probably had that experience. And those people who really had this horrible experience so bad that it caused them to quit the church, that was, I'm sure that was real too. My doubt was that that those were the majority experiences, you know, the, those were the only experiences because those were really the only ones we were reading about. And the more I talked to people, the more I thought, you know, there are a lot of people like me, kind of in between. You're just hanging on in the church, and you're trying to make sense of your mission. You like lots of things about the church, other maybe some things you don't, but you just try to. You just want to make sense of it. It had this big impact. It's this huge iconic thing. I mean, who are the most iconic figures of Mormonism? You know, white-shirted male missionary, at least until recently. And, you know, the polygamous wife. These are the, probably the two things that people most think of, right? My wife and I happen to be writing about both of these subjects. I don't know what that says about us. But anyway, so what, you know, what, uh, I just felt like this, this kind of thing uh, could be written, a more honest account. When I'm talking to hundreds of missionaries over the years, we talked about our difficulties in private but you didn't hear them much in public, you know, just like you just it just kind of wasn't done. You just didn't say it. And so I knew there were issues. But anyway, I decided that, I, you know, I wanted to write this. The closer I got to writing it then when I did my conversions book, I realized there was another audience that I was interested in just as much. And that was people who, had, who were not LDS. I wanted to I wanted to humanize missionaries for people who were not LDS as well as for people who were LDS. You know, maybe. LDS people tend to romanticize them a little bit, especially if they haven't been on a mission. Um, And outsiders tend to demonize them or see them as morons, at least, thanks to the musical, right? You know, you're kind of moronic or demonic or robotic, whatever. So I wanted to humanize missionaries for them. And I think I got interested in that because I realized over the years, too, working, you know, being a, a student of Catholic history, mostly I write about Catholicism and now Protestantism as well. I realized the more I talked to people of all different faiths, the more it hit me that by sharing our faith experiences, I was doing a lot more to promote and develop interfaith relations than I was by arguing about theology, the way I've done it as a missionary, for instance, or the way we tend to think we have to talk about faith. is, What do you believe? What do you believe in? You know, we try to find common ground, but maybe don't always... But sharing the kind of warts and all faith experiences, somehow that was what shook me into realizing these people are a lot like me, and I think they were saying the same thing, and they could relate to this. And, and so when I, and when I thought to myself, when I read about Judaism or, or Islam or somebody who's Catholic, and I read a faith experience, I want to read the real thing. Somebody who's trying, somebody who's in the middle of it, I want them to use all their terms. I want to understand what the terms are, but I, I want to know the whole thing. And I want to see the warts and all. Things you don't like and things you do like. And so that's how I wrote this. And that's what made me want to publish it with someone who wasn't in the Mormon cultural quarter. You know, uh, this is Erdmunds who's a Christian publisher, was one of the first people I sent it to, and they really liked it. And I was glad about that, of course, but I was, I was also affirmed in my sense that they would get it. Um, he... He most the first thing he said was well I've never laughed so hard at anything that's crossed my desk but you know since he's at Erdman's I didn't take that as a big compliment <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of boring books on theology but but I still was glad that they got that but the other response was there were a lot of people there who work in the marketing and so on and they they're all young evangelical types and they're all saying we, we can totally relate to this So that made me feel like you know maybe I wasn't I wasn't too far off in thinking that... The sharing of faith experiences, to me, is a better way than even just talking about theology uh, might be. I, um, I think one of the things that they related to most was the sense of not attaining the ideals of your religion. The ideals that are set up. What do you do when you're in that position which we all find ourselves in? And they could relate to the struggles, even though they came from a Protestant tradition, which kind of accepts that we all fail. You know, we're going to fail. We're saved by grace, right? The Catholics they have a whole sacramental system set up based on the assumption that we're going to fail. Mormons really believe they're not going to fail. <laughs> you know, they really believe you're going to reach all the ideals, and so. I think maybe that's the struggle that they recognized best, maybe even in an exaggerated sense compared to their own experience, that sense of futility and loss, that I am a failure if I don't meet these ideals. Reconciling yourself, your own limitations, with your ideals is part of maturing in any culture. Every culture has ideals. Every culture has people who don't live up to those ideals. In fact, probably everyone doesn't live up to those ideals. But... Part of growing up is having to reconcile them, and what makes it hard in Mormonism, I felt, was the sense that no, there is nothing outside the ideal; that is the reality. There isn't ideal, and then your reality. No, there is ideal as reality. It's a very Platonic thing, you know. This belief that there are these universal ideals, and if you don't reach them, you got no. You don't have enough faith. Uh, you probably committed a sin, you know. Um, th- and this kind of approach. So. I felt kind of lost on my mission, having to try to do that kind of reconciling. There, there was no, there were not, there was nothing to think with in that sense when you were failing, and so I had to kind of come up with my own things. And that's kind of what the book leads to. That's probably the main theme of the book. Is just you know, I set up all these ideals that I had growing up, um, especially that I imbibed from watching missionaries come home, speaking these exotic languages, telling such miraculous stories, you know. And people do that differently, too. It's, it's, it's not as if there's this one single ideal. It's rather your personality plays a big role in this, too. You know, personality and expectation. I think that explains a lot about the dream. Some people had no clue what I was talking about with the dream. But most people did. And uh, I began to realize it wasn't based on where you went. It was based more on your personality and your expectations. So sure, we get these ideals tossed at us. They, they don't happen in a vacuum. but. It also has to do with how we process them. We have to take responsibility for these. But anyway, so that's kind of the that's kind of the the big theme of the book, I guess. And and um, if you if you'd like, I'd be glad to answer some questions now. I thought maybe I'd read a little bit from it to give a flavor of it. I. Um, uh, Morris was telling me you know, certain parts that he liked they were laughing and Dawn had a laughing fit that, that made me very proud she had a laughing <laughs> fit, she couldn't stop laughing and my friend uh, told me he read it on the airplane and embarrassed his wife so badly I, you know, I, that's the highest compliment I can get but I, I, I had a piece in mind I thought I might read that was maybe a, you know, a little more on the serious point of the book but I thought maybe I'd take some questions first I'm not talking so much all at once. If you wanted to respond to any of those points, or if you looked at the book and, and had something there, and then maybe I'd read a little bit and we could do a few more questions. Why yeah, do a survey and hear and see who's had the dream. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very non-scientific sampling. I'm sure people have had the dream. A few people have already told me. Yeah, you can raise your hand. Don't be shy. Oh yes. My name is Craig. I've had the dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so.
2: You, you mentioned um, you know relatively few people actually write up as a narrative their mission, even though so many people have had that experience. And all have
1: great stories too.
2: Yeah, tell stories, yeah. but you know don't grapple with actually writing it up. Yeah. And those few who do tend, like you say, not to write really a candid account of what happened out there. So uh, what what led you to finally do that? And I mean, would you have done it if you were to historian? Did, did there, yeah. Was it you being a historian that impelled you?
1: Now, there's a real chicken and egg thing going on here because without the mission, I wouldn't have become a historian. But without being a historian, I wouldn't have written it this way. I, and studying other people's religious history made me you know, adopt an approach that I'm not the only one who uses, but that I was convinced is the best way to study religion as a historian, which is, you might just call it the empathetic approach. You try to understand somebody on their terms. You want to understand somebody as they would like to be understood, as frankly as possible. That's good and bad. It's just a whole. You don't think of it as good and bad. And I think that's how I wanted to understand myself and portray myself. Here's the the whole thing. Um, And and so I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that had a big influence. And and I think there's also a growing openness, you know, since 2000 or so, just about Mormon history, about Mormon experience. Um, And so that's... of the zeitgeist i'm sure i I, there are other people writing about their missions you know when i was writing mine i I was aware of several others who were writing theirs and and these were published and you're kind of writing about them in the same frank way so i think it's in the zeitgeist as well but but certainly personally with my experience as a historian that had a big impact yeah Uh, did
3: you keep a mission journal and did you
1: consult it or letters you had written to help you write your yeah i i mentioned at dinner that i kept I have my journal. I wrote in it a lot. I have all the letters of my mission. I've got a huge box of letters from all sorts of people organized by, you know, the girls, boys, family, stuff like this, right? And uh, at first I started reading through it like a historian and taking notes, and it was like, ah, this isn't what I want to do. I wanted to write something that was more emotional. I wanted to write more about what I felt. And what I ended up writing in the book was what was not in my journal or in (laughs) the letters that I wrote. It's not that those were lies, it's that they just didn't tell everything. And in fact, when I, I would check my journal and check letters for events to make sure I had details right, um, and sometimes I didn't, but most of the time, you know, I wrote it from my head. And when I would read and, and check in the journal, I would, I would say, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking, but I would also remember exactly what I didn't write. It, it was it was amazing, you know? I, I could recall these events were just kind of seared into me, and I, I knew what I was writing. So. Sure, it's been 37 years since I was on a mission, and so my memory can be faulty and so on, and I would have written it differently 15 years ago if I'd written it then, but I think the essential feeling is still there, and maybe I conveyed it differently now than I would have 15 years ago, but I think the essential, I I mostly wanted, what was it like to struggle? and So I wanted the interior life of the missionary. Everybody has good mission stories, you know, and every time I hear one, I wish I would had that in my book, you know, I just thought that was such a good story, but... I don't know, maybe some of mine are good too, I hope. <laughs> so, one thing that struck me as you're talking is that
2: this is a, a failures narrative or something. And so, so the thing that's reminded me of, of course, especially with the interfaith, I mean, not failures, but failures of ideals narrative. Yeah. And especially with the interfaith component, I mean, this reminds me of Jan Reese, who recently wrote Flunky
1: Sainthood, yeah.
2: Right. And this is sort of, again, sort of the, taking a humorous take on look at all of these ideals which I didn't meet. And then, what life lessons did I learn from that? Is I mean, is that the same sort of? Do, do you see that as, as being sort of the same overall story?
1: Sure. I mean, you could go back to who, who started the genre of the uh, confession on paper, Saint Augustine, right? And and he didn't really tell jokes. Uh, <laughs> he didn't really portray himself in a humorous way. Uh, and then in the Reformation, the same kind of thing. You had lots of these kind of confessional books. People administ- admitting their faults and their flaws. So I'm sure it's in that way. I think in the modern world, because we have different sensibilities, you know, doing it with a certain sense of humor uh, is, is, is not just a way of uh, detracting. It's more of a modern sensibility of uh, humor helps you to understand your humanness. In the 16th century, it may not have been necessary to make jokes to get, let people admit your humanness. You, know, you did it very seriously. And now I think humor is almost an essential part of that. Yeah, it has a lot to do... I, I think that's right. Janet's book's very very funny and interesting and and I think helpful and mook as well. So that's what I was trying to do.
0: I want to hear you read some stuff.
1: Okay, I will. I'll answer one more.
3: And I want you to please don't... Please read
1: whatever's making Don laugh so hard. In addition to your more serious... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to, I can do that too. <laughs> All right. So... This is from um, a chapter called The Great Church Council of Nowhere. And two things to be aware of is that when I uh, repeat conversations that are in Dutch, I keep the Dutch syntax. And that's just to give a flavor of the Dutch without actually doing Dutch. And I thought it was pretty humorous. So if the words sound funny when I'm quoting missionaries, it's because it's in the Dutch syntax. And the other thing is the, uh, the local businessmen. Um, in, in one of the early chapters, I explain when we get to the mission home. One of the first things they tell us is, "We want you to dress like the local businessmen," which you know immediately gave me all kinds of. I, so I keep that motif throughout the book. You know, the, the local businessmen are, and then when we get there, we don't even look like them. But anyway, so this is the Great Church Council of Nowhere, on a dark autumn night in Belgium, on a bus somewhere between Antwerp and Hassel, four local businessmen with a seedy bar top church were engaged in one of the great theological controversies of their time. Shout out the names of the great church councils. Shout them out from the orange rooftops of Belgium. Don't hold back, because you know them. Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, Constance, and Trent, then Augsburg, Dort, and Westminster, all the way to Vatican II. Bellow them out from your nethermost parts. Send them soaring over the highest Gothic vault, then add to that hallowed list just one more. Four local businessmen on a bus somewhere between Antwerp and Hasselt. Shout out as well the great theological controversies the great councils were always going on about, not just ordinary going on about, but elite top shelf going on about, involving some of the sublimest minds of all time, tearing countries and churches into so much fluff, and riling up heavily clothed and mostly unathletic bishops to the point that they started throwing things at each other when words were clearly not doing the trick. Shout out the great theological controversies, too, because they're just as forever etched in the sacred annals as the great councils are. Was the Son consubstantial with the Father? Was the Holy Ghost consubstantial with both? Did Christ have a divine and a human will or just a divine one? How does grace go with works again? How many angels was it could stand on the head of a pin? Should a missionary kiss his girlfriend or especially non-girlfriend goodbye at the airport? Then add to that glorious pile the great controversy now raging at this latest and unexpectedly mobile church council in the middle of Belgium nowhere. Which book of scripture should you use when reading the prayer over the Mormon sacrament? (laughs) The tempest was precipitated by we four hostile living missionaries not having attended the usual sacrament meeting in our bar top church that day, Sunday. In fact, no Flemish speaking missionaries anywhere had attended any church meetings that day. On this particular Sunday, we'd all gathered together instead for a big Flemish choir festival in Antwerp, 85 kilometers from Hassel, where most of us had that day sung our missionary hearts out as part of the short-lived Mormon missionary choir. We'd gone to all the trouble of joining the festival and rehearsing every Saturday and even unprecedentedly skipping sacrament meeting today, not because of some big passion for choir music, but because we hoped that if the large missionary-fearing audience could just see and hear a large group of friendly missionaries singing out friendly Flemish tunes in the friendly environment that was the hallmark of Flemish and maybe all choir festivals, then maybe that audience would, despite the imperfect accents, feel just a little less fearful the next time a couple of said friendly missionaries came inevitably knocking at the door. It was the musical version of the local businessman approach, with local choristers instead. There was nothing to see outside in the dark, and almost no one else was on board, so we four local businessmen slash choristers just started talking among ourselves, casually at first about the festival and who we'd seen, but it didn't take long for the conversation to turn to just how strange it was not to have attended sacrament meeting that Sunday and not to have taken the sacrament as we had our entire Sunday lives been wont to do. But then one of us, the off-talking and off-smiling Elder Trimbo, lit up his eyes the way he was born to, and Eureka! exclaimed that we could, too, take the sacrament that day. We could just take it privately among the four of us in our apartment when we got back, instead of publicly among the usual throngs in our bar top church Sunday morning. <laughs> Settle then. Good idea. That's what we do when we got home. Pause. Quiet. Thinking. Ah, thinking. That's how the latest trouble started. While I was using the lull in the conversation to think about how maybe something holy like taking the sacrament might help me feel less guilty for being glad about not having to proselyte that day. Elder Trimbo (laughs) was remembering some important detail, something big about doing the sacrament on your own instead of the usual way in church. And as usual, he felt like he needed to convince everyone else of his view, which was how this latest greatest church council on wheels really got going in Dutch. If we the sacrament among us do, began Elder Trimbo slowly in his best passive-aggressive manner, raising his eyebrows innocently and lowering his chin humbly and pitching his voice even more kindly than usual to suggest he was harmless. But in truth, he was impossibly stubborn when he was sure he was right, like right now. (laughs) Then President Jorgensen of the LTM has said that we the sacrament prayers from out the Doctrine and Covenants must read and not the Book of Mormon because the Doctrine and Covenants for the modern church written was. Upon hearing this declaration... The three other three local businessmen went into the same state as the target audience of Maimonides' famous guide for the perplexed. Why was he making such a big stink about this? We just wanted to go home and do the sacrament, and the prayers are written exactly the same in both books, so what difference makes it out as long as the words right are? Plus, the Book of Mormon is a fine book. How would you can think that it wrong is a prayer they're out to read? <laughs> The controversy got my mind reaching to the highest heavens now, as I thought of one dynamite objection after the next to Elder Trimbow's claim, like the fact that the sacrament of prayer was usually read from a printed card, not from an open Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants. What if the card had been copied from the uh, what if the card had been copied from the Book of Mormon and not the D.N.C. <laughs> Would the thousands of sacrament prayers said from that card then not count? That might have been enough to convince the great sacramentarian minds from Augustine to Zwingli, but they weren't even close to even millimeterly budging the exceedingly stubborn local businessman named Elder Trimbo. <laughs> Elder Trimbo wasn't the kind of guy who started yelling or throwing things when he didn't get his way. In fact, I would have bet a cone of precious Belgian fries that he didn't even know how to throw at all, which was just one of the many things that bugged me about him. <laughs> he was the definition of big and tall without the definition, was for some reason more interested in music than sports, modulated his voice a whole lot more than most local businessmen did. And when he was excited, often, he broke into a huge smile that not only made his eyes but his teeth twinkle. Also, when he bore his testimony of the truthfulness of the church, he used the cheesiest phrases known to mice and local businessmen. So instead of saying the usual idiomatic, I'd like to leave my testimony with you today, he'd say with eyebrows raised higher and chin lowered lower than ever, I won't leave my testimony with you today because I'm going to need it myself. I will just share it, followed by an exaggerated pause that gave everyone more than enough time to process his clever little twist, and making me want to yell, It's just the idiomatic and therefore not to be taken literally expression. Bugging me even more than all that was how Elder Trimbo always seemed to get his way, usually by breaking out his huge, twinkly smile. On our usual day off, for instance, Elder Trimbo, the college music major, appointed himself the expert on exactly what sort of music was proper for missionaries, a crucial subject. Since P-Day was the only day, besides choir festivals, we got to listen to music at all. One P-Day, he heard somebody quietly playing the Eagles and walked into the room to non-latitudinarianly declare that even though Mission Rules didn't specifically forbid rock music, it obviously wasn't right. Only the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and other church music were appropriate. That other church music clause turned out to be Elder Trimbo's secret stash. Because five minutes after declaring the Eagles unfit for missionary consumption, there had come blaring from his own cassette player in the next room where he was cheerily writing letters and ironing shirts, a loud sampling of some of that other church music, the heavy brass sounds of the BYU Cougar marching band, of which he'd been a proud tuba-playing member. We were a little crazy, he warned. Wait, the other missionaries objected. Why was loud and brassy music like that okay? Elder Trimble was ready. Even though the cougar marching band's blaring sound was more blaring than the eagles, even though the cougar marching band sometimes even played the eagles, it was the BYU cougar marching band. Enough said. BYU was the church's school, ergo was the Lord's school, ergo the marching band was the Lord's marching band. How ergo could that band possibly play anything objectionable? (laughs) <laughs> Music from Saturday's Warrior, the bafflingly popular Mormon musical, was despite its heavy pop sound, also given the P-Day seal of approval by Elder Trembo because of its supposedly improving message. He even approved the Saturday's Warrior on other days, like when there were big missionary meetings, where during breaks he'd gather other Saturday's Warrior enthusiasts around the piano, and while he pounded out song after song in irreverent volume, both he and the gathered enthusiast would also sing at irreverent volume from the convenient Saturdays where your he just happened to have with him at all times. Not for himself, of course, but for his ever-changing cast of backup singers. But again, despite Elder Trimbo's countless crimes against humanity, I had to give him credit for never really getting mad. Not even right now on the bus where three people were saying less politely than he would have that maybe he was being just a little nuts about the sacrament prayer. Reaching our apartment at last, we quickly made the few preparations necessary for our small sacrament service, putting a piece of bread on one plate, a few little cups of water on another. But what about the prayer? Would it come from the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants? With the whole world watching, my companion, Elder Shepherd, handed the Book of Mormon to me and asked me to read the prayer aloud. Elder Trivo was deep, deep, deep in the dumps by now, and not just because the wrong book was being used for the prayer but because he was absolutely buried in guilt over having started our very little debate. In fact, after I said the prayer over the bread and stood to pass it to him, he just put his chin in his chest and wagged his head melodramatically, no, three little wags. He wouldn't take it. He wasn't worthy. He'd started an argument. All that without saying a word. I gave a fully public eye roll and mentally raised my hands to the heavens it hadn't even been a big argument, not like at Nicaea or Constance or Dort where people were running in and out and yelling things and threatening each other with excommunication. But in Elder Trimbo's mind, he'd broken the peace and he wanted everyone to know just how badly he felt about it, which I probably should have appreciated. It was better than someone being nasty about the whole thing, but I found it hard to appreciate because it somehow felt in my own surely troubled and overly suspicious mind that those three little wags of Elder Trimble's formidable head were just another way of declaring again his moral superiority. Those suspicions naturally gave me something else to feel guilty about for not loving my fellow missionary the way I ought. And when Elder Trimble predictably turned down the past around water as well, I felt even guiltier still, and now so did the other two missionaries which meant that even though the sacrament prayer that evening in the dark little apartment had been read against Elder Trimble's wishes from the Book of Mormon, he'd still come out of the great church council as a pretty clear-cut winner. He'd outrighteous us all. He wanted to take the sacrament more than anyone. The whole thing had even been his idea, but then he gave it up because he cared more about offending his fellow missionaries than we grudge-holders cared about offending him. Maybe we were the ones who'd taken the sacrament unworthily, we had to think.
0: That's, that's,
1: that's, that's, that's. I'm sure none of you had such petty arguments on your mission. No? Um, I recount some other ones as well. One of my favorites was when one of my other companions uh, and I argued about whether over Donnie Osmond should go on a mission.
0: <laughs> that was probably a big one around
1: missions, I would guess, in 1975, you know, because he was just about our age. And, uh turned out to be a huge argument. Believe it or not, even bigger than this one, and it didn't end as happily. Yes.
2: Were names changed to protect the enemy? <laughs>
1: yes, but of course, if you were in my mission and you, you know, and you knew anybody involved here, then you, you know, then it was it'd be pretty easy to identify who was who. But, uh, but you know, we had 150 people in our mission. I didn't know everybody, so I, I'm sure not. Every, I'm sure not every missionary knows everybody I'm talking about here. But if you did know the people, then certainly you know, you would know who they were. And Morris and I were talking about this. How do you write memoir without offending people? (laughs) And getting lawsuits, (laughs) So did
3: Donny Osmond go on a mission?
1: Uh, I don't think he did, but that was was precisely the argument. You know, what he... uh, And I think uh, on his 50th birthday, there was an interview on TV. And he said that he'd been counseled by church leaders not to go. Because he would do more good and, and that was the argument I had used against my companion but he my companion of course said the prophet said every young man so you know you can think what you want but every young man so when I saw the interview I really chuckled and I was proud you know I thought oh, I, I won that argument but then just about a little bit later David Archuleta went on a mission you know and so then my companion you know he would have been chuckling at the Yes. But,
2: uh, uh, Donnie, yes, uh, I was on my mission when he got married, so we had some debate about the very same thing. I remember walking down the street th- with a companion having that same argument. Uh, <laughs> but later on, that was early in my mission, later on in my mission, uh, we would knock doors, and Australians are not uh, always the most hospitable towards Americans and those t- in that day, let alone Mormons. But uh, we found that Donnie and Marie being so popular was the most popular TV show uh, in Melbourne area where I was we, we were treated even though it didn't get us in some doors it did get us in some not not because we were Mormons just because the, yeah. they knew that Donnie and Marie were uh, it did a lot of good for us in getting uh,
1: some respect um, I'll do um, one other this is from a chapter called Just One More Last Cigarette so after my mission, I'd sometimes dream about Lifa de Clerc, but it was never a bad dream. It usually happened on February 4th, Lifa de Clerk Day. The day I observed silently to myself every year. The day, well, half day, that Lifa was Mormon. She was in her mid-30s and tall and striking and married with three kids between eight and twelve. But the most striking thing of all about her was that she kept saying she wanted to be baptized. No one ever said that. A few said they think about it, then didn't think. A very few said they'd be baptized, but then acted like they weren't home the next time we came by. And one couple told me they wanted to be baptized, but it was impossible because the wife had the ground transportation sickness trifecta, car tram and bus, and so could not go to church. Well, the husband was a big cigar band collector whose biggest meetings were always on Sunday. And if it came down to cigar bands or church, you knew who was going to win that battle. But in my experience, that was about as close as anyone usually got to saying, I want to be baptized. But Leifa was serious. During my first visit to her home, she said in her strong and slightly slurred voice, that it came from all the medications she'd had to take for the dozen or so operations on her back, that she'd had a vision about it. I just sat there, open mouthed, because again, no one said that, even if they were on drugs. <laughs> Several problems arose. Uh, the biggest problem was, the first problem was, who would get the credit for this? Because she'd been taught by another set of missionaries. So if I bat, if I. Baptized her would count as a full baptism for me, which was a big problem for me. I've had one twelfth of a baptism so far on that mission, and maybe one sixty fourth for shaking the hand of somebody who eventually got baptized. But I wasn't sure if this, I felt like I had to have one. Uh, Another problem did Leifa really know what she was doing? She kept smoking like a diesel bus, you know, even though she knew Mormons weren't supposed to do this. How would she get to church? It was 35 kilometers away. There's no way she could afford a taxi uh, to go that in far every time and I didn't think she had the physical stamina stamina because of her back uh, to take the, the train and the tram that were required to get to church and, but she kept insisting because she had this vision she had a dream of being baptized and then her husband her husband Ludo was a postman but he was a great cook and he cooked for us too you know. but Ludo um, said okay wasn't happy about it said okay but then he changed his mind so that's when the crisis started I was in full crisis mode when I heard this, so I rode home and climbed up into the attic to be alone. Oh, I was still aiming for 20 baptisms. My original goal had been 84, but I'd brought it down to a more realistic (laughs) 20. For 20, but deep, deep down, I wondered whether I'd ever get one, or whether I'd ever be this close again. This is only five months before I went home. Didn't I have to get at least one full-fledged, put-them-in-the-water-myself baptism before going home? If the whole point of being missionary was to baptize people, I couldn't stand that thought of having only one, but then one thought saved me. Conversion motif 5C, the unexpected exponential qualities of the number one. This said that, okay, so maybe a missionary might baptize only one, but that one might go on to convert someone else, and those someone's still more someone else's, until maybe the whole bunch was up to, say, 20, or even 84. That little unexpected exp- exponential kick from one which just completely ignored the numbers, usually non-exponential powers, usually, or actually made your single baptism even more crucial than baptism number 37 or something, because the one that you've gone to all the trouble of getting was the linchpin, the one that if you wouldn't have gone to all the trouble of getting, would have caused those that followed never to happen. That was a story you could be proud of telling to people, including girl people. <laughs> I just kept lying there on the attic floor thinking about all this, not looking out the little window in the slanted roof across all the houses in the rolling skittyscape feeling like I was responsible for the salvation of them all the way I usually did. I just laid it the way I usually did when I was in crisis mode, eyes down, head on my hands, wrestling with myself. After about an hour of that, I started feeling a little like maybe I was making this whole thing a little too much about myself instead of about Lifa, even though I kept telling myself that, yes, it really was Lifa's salvation that was at stake here. By the end of my lie down, I felt just a little like I could actually let Lifa go and stop worrying so much about how many I baptized. Sure, I'd feel bad and maybe a little humiliated about going home with zero baptisms or even 19th, 190 seconds of a baptism, but I'd get over it. Of course, that little bit of letting go disappeared real fast when her out-of-breath son, Jonas, came knocking in at our door about 10 minutes later saying, My mother is of opinion changed. She wants baptized to be. Full of new hope, we rode right over to her house again to hear the news for ourselves which Lisa confirmed as she lay there on the couch in pain, smoking another cigarette. The last one, she promised again, without me even needing to say anything. She wanted to go through with the baptism. And if Ludo gave her any grief, she said, then I should just give her a little push and make her go through with it anyway. I didn't like the thought of that. But if Lifa wanted me to push, then maybe I would a little. She told us to come back at 5, and we'd all ride to the church in a taxi. We got back to Lifa's place, as promised at 5, worried that maybe she'd change her mind again especially since Ludo was sure to be home by now. But there she was, all smiles, and ready to go. Her oldest and most protective child, Valerie, was ready to go too. Ludo acted friendly, but when the four of us went out the door to the taxi, he went into the other room and didn't say goodbye. We all crowded into the back seat of the big blue Mercedes, as the driver didn't want anyone up front. When we pulled away, I breathed out and allowed myself to think for the first time, it's really going to happen. I'm really going to baptize someone. Or maybe not. Five minutes later, Leafa pulled out a cigarette and lit up. (laughs) I didn't always mind cigarettes, believe it or not. When I smelled cigarette smoke in a super-diluted form outside, it actually reminded me of some happy things, like baseball, where any memory I had of some epic catch or big hit or great pitch always played out against a haze of bleacher-filling parents lighting up and blowing out. No, I only minded cigarettes when they were indoors or maybe most of all when they were in a taxi on the way to what might be my only baptism ever. (laughs) With the calmest voice I could muster without coughing, I reminded Letha again that once she was baptized, she'd have to give those things up. And as usual, she said, it was the last one, and this time handed me the pack. I'd never held a pack of cigarettes before, and not knowing what to do with them, i just stuck them inside the coat pocket of the hand-me-down brown stainless steel suit I'd recently inherited (laughs) from a going-home missionary. The rest of the ride, I just looked out the window and sweated. When we finally got to the church at the north end of Brussels and walked inside, the famously grumpy janitor walked up to me and said, Well, goes it through? He'd seen plenty of canceled baptisms in his day, and he wasn't going to fill the baptismal font all the way up with precious water until it was a sure thing. Hoping that the janitor wasn't noticing the bulge in my coat pocket or the cigarette smell rising up from every stainless steel fiber, (laughs) I just said, I think it. Think? I mean, yes, it goes through. Keep filling, please." I wasn't sure, though. I went down the hall to be alone again, while Leifa, with the help of Valerie and a couple of ladies, went down another hall to change into her big white baptismal dress. There in the little bare classroom, I felt like I was on an even bigger roller coaster than I'd been up in the attic just a few hours before. In the attic, I'd been ready to give up the baptism. But then after Jonas came knocking, and especially when we climbed into the taxi, my hopes had gone soaring again, and I just had to have that baptism. But then when Leifa pulled out her cigarette, I had to think really hard that maybe I should just give up baptizing her after all, And maybe it wasn't the best thing for anyone except maybe for me. I didn't want to be one of those missionaries who was so desperate to baptize someone that he'd baptize anyone. Rumors about missionaries doing that were already floating out of Latin America where missionaries were baptizing plenty, but they were under serious pressure to baptize even more. And so maybe they do things like the missionary in Brazil my friend saw, who in his desperation to reach a goal late one night, finally grabbed the drunk man at a bar and took him outside and dunked him in a barrel of water and called it a <laughs> baptism. Or like some missionaries in Mexico who just wrote on baptismal forms some names they got from tombstones in the local cemetery. But I didn't even have to look at Latin America because there had been the famous baseball baptisms in England and France a decade or two before, where kids were told they couldn't play this really cool new church-funded game unless, by the way, they were baptized first. Oh, those English and French missionaries. But I didn't even have to look to England either, or France, because guess what? Right here in Belgium, right in Hassel, where I first worked, it was very possible that the 20 or 25 people who'd quit being Mormon almost the instant they'd been baptized, had pretty possibly had some dubious methods used on them as well, by the legendary Elder Fisher, the one who proved you really could baptize in Belgium. Because when my companion and I had gone looking these people up to learn their stories, well, almost all of them said they hadn't really known what they were doing or even what the baptism was about when they'd done it. And they were still pretty obviously angry about it, too. Oh, that Elder Fisher. But maybe I and a lot of others were a lot more like Elder Fisher and these other sneaky missionaries than we thought, because didn't we all put some serious pressure on people, too, maybe just without the same level of skill as Elder Fisher and company? Like a certain breed of car salesman, maybe I too believe that just about no one was capable of making a serious decision like buying a car or saving a soul all by herself, but needed a little pushing and pulling and nudging to get there for her own good. I tried pushing people into committing to this or that behavior too, and even told Leifa that if she had faith and went through with her baptism, then her husband's heart would be softened. Maybe it was more about making myself and all the people back home feel good than about making locals feel good. Because you could bet that all those really skilled missionaries had written home some mighty strong and grateful letters about how they'd been blessed with baptisms. And that their parents probably wept because that's what they'd been waiting to hear. And that their bishops probably read the exploits right from the pulpit during church and that no one was ever going to hear any retraction. No bishop was going to stand up and say, I have a little correction to the fantastic baptizing success we heard about from Elder Blank. Namely, that as well-meaning as he was, quite a few of his baptisms might have been a little hasty before people really knew what they were doing. So please make a note that just about all 20 or so of the baptisms that made us so happy when we heard about them, that made us feel like if people were getting baptized at a foreign place like that, it just proved our church was irresistible. We're mostly about Elder Blank feeling good about himself and us about ourselves. Nope, no such retraction in the history of Mormondom. And if there had been or ever would be, I didn't want it being said about me. But kneeling there in the classroom, I had to admit that part of me wanted to make my parents weep, just like Elder Fisher's parents no doubt had. Part of me wanted to make my bishop proud, and a lot of me wanted to make Rochelle, the girl I was writing, swoon. And I even started thinking that I deserved a baptism, what with all the hours I'd put in, and all the wind and rain I'd ridden through, and all the sweat and emotion and bicycle spills I'd endured, and all the will-breaking times I'd forced myself to talk to people in public places, just for starters. But then, just like in the dismal upstairs bedroom, and, and like in the attic a few hours ago came that calm that I now recognize as the closest thing to sure I ever felt about God. And that feeling said without any words that I didn't have to baptize Leaf or even 83 other people to feel good about what I was doing. The whole mission business that hit me for at least a nano moment was more about suffering a little with people and feeling connected to them than it was about baptizing them. It was about being a friend, however trite that sounded. However much breaking up boyfriends and girlfriends debased the term by saying they just wanted to be friends without even really meaning it. However much leader types were always saying to missionaries, you're not here to make friends, like that was some bad thing. Jesus had a pretty strong view about friends, as in laying down your life for them, which went way beyond the casual sort of relationship most people meant by that term. That's what the whole mission business was about It now, seemed to me. Maybe even the whole religion business, maybe even the whole life business. I felt a huge sense of release, relief. I was even almost ready, but not quite, to give up my vision of 84 or 20 or even 1+. plus. But after all that, I also have probably felt like the right thing to do at that particular moment was actually to go ahead and baptize Leifa, and not for my sake, but because of the big, beautiful dream she'd had. Still, it should be Windex clear by now that any noble feelings I had inside were not always the most stable things in the world. In fact, they pretty regularly traded places with all the noble feelings, ignoble feelings, lurking inside me, too. In fact... The two sorts of feelings were so familiar with each other by now that they casually waved at each other in passing all the time. (laughs) Because after I got up from my prayer in the sterile little classroom and went and changed into my own baptismal clothes, some of those less noble feelings somehow snuck right back in during the baptism itself. All 15 or so people there that night, including the skeptical janitor, were watching from the baptism room while Leafa walked down the steps on one side of the font and I down the other. I then held her wrist with my left hand, raised my arm to a square, and said the short baptismal prayer, and put her under the water back first. For the rest of my life, I'd remember the exact weight of Leafa in that heavy gown as I eased her into the water with my right hand on her back and my left hand on her wrist and then lifted her out again with a loud whoosh. She was beaming, and so was Valerie, and so was I. But the thing was, the main reason I was beaming, that despite the noble feeling I'd had moments before in the classroom, the primary thought taking over my head when I put Leaf into the water was now I could say I'd at least baptized someone. <laughs> I didn't want to admit that that was the thought that went out in the end, but it was true. That's what I felt most. I didn't even know how it had snuck in there, and not just snuck in, but forged its way to the front. And yet there it was, dominating all those other feelings running around inside of me. That's why I wasn't so much different from all those really slick elders, just less skilled. Or maybe it wasn't even so much different from a going-home senior companion in my friend's mission who dressed up in white and punched out the just arrived junior companion, a converting woman, had asked to baptize her. So desperate was the puncher to get a woman, uh, uh, sorry, a baptism before he went home. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have punched out Elder Roy, my companion, but if Leif had asked him to baptize her, I would have understood a little how that guy felt. After the baptism, the really good-hearted branch president of Brussels went 20 miles out of his way to drive Valerie, Lifa, me, and Elder Roy back to Halle so he wouldn't have to take another expensive taxi, and we all ate a few goodies at the post-baptismal get-together. Ludo was nowhere to be seen despite his food preparation skills. The really good-hearted branch president promised to visit her every month, but I wondered whether he really could since he lived clear across Brussels from her and already had so many other people to visit and ten times too much responsibility as it was. Within a few years, he would quit the church exhausted. In fact, trouble with Letha Letha started that very night. Just after we all left, she fell down the stairs on her way up to bed and hurt her back again. Elder Roy and I heard about it when we went by the next morning to say hello. Ludo answered the door and told us the news, saying we could go upstairs and see her if we wanted, but she was on more medication to deal with the pain. Ludo said it like he was blaming me for everything. I smelled the cigarette smoke as soon as I hit the stairs, breaking my heart. She couldn't stop being Mormon already, I thought. Not like the people in Hassel. Not like all those bad baptisms in France and England and Brazil. I thought the situation so serious that I told Elder Roy to stay downstairs and talk to Ludo while I went and had a serious talk with Leifa in her bedroom, which was against all sorts of mission rules. but that's how serious I thought it was. <laughs> Leifa was barely lucid, but she did manage a hello, Elder. I smiled tightly and asked, how feel you, Leifa? But then instead of waiting to hear or instead of consoling her, I just said, Remember that you promised have never more to smoke? I know, Elder, said Leifa groggily. I forgot because of the pain. She handed me my second pack of cigarettes in two days, and I tried to convince myself she really meant it, even, instead of even entertaining the idea that maybe she'd never be a practicing Mormon. Now I tried consoling her a little and wished her a good recovery, but I left feeling uncertain about everything. That happened on a Saturday, which meant the next day was Sunday, which was supposed to be Leifa's first day at church, but of course she never made it to church. Not that Sunday, and not any other. We went by her house later that day to see how she was feeling, but this time she wasn't even friendly. Maybe she was blaming us for her fall too, like Ludo, that somehow it had been a bad omen of her baptism. Even the kids seemed mad at me. In fact, when we went by again on Monday, even friendly Jonas wouldn't let us in, except to let us stick our heads in the door and say hi to Leifa, lying on the couch, her pack of cigarettes lying right next to her. Where did she get them all, I thought, dejectedly, as we left. I stayed in Holland another month or so, but whenever we tried to visit Leifa, no one answered. Once I saw the curtains move, the universal sign in Belgium that people didn't want to answer the door. At least I got to see Leifa and her family a few months later, just before I went home to California. They even invited me over for a farewell dinner, maybe because it was pretty clear to Ludo by now that he wasn't going to lose Leifa after all. I even gave my old bike to Jonas so he wouldn't have to run everywhere anymore. And when I started going back to Belgium as a historian, Lifa and Ludo were always glad to see me. Lifa never mentioned her dream again or getting baptized, but her health got a little better. She even gave up smoking, which made me laugh. And Ludo made even more great meals for me. One year, though, when Ludo was out delivering the mail, someone hit him on his motor scooter, which damaged the part of his brain that let him taste. But Ludo kept cooking anyway because he loved it so much. Then another year I called and Lifa said, Ludo is dead, some complications from his accident. Leafa and her dozen operations had outlived almost always laughing Ludo, who'd practically single-handedly kept the family together during Leafa's bad times. Leafa took me out to visit Ludo's grave. I'd really liked Ludo and always felt bad about the worry I'd caused him. And then finally one other year I called and Leafa's number was disconnected, which made me fear the worst. And sure enough, when I finally found Leafa's daughter Valerie at the restaurant she now ran, she confirmed it. Leafa was dead, barely 60 years old. I'd hardly seen Leafa during those 25 years since my mission, and her baptism hadn't exactly been Gibraltar-like in Mormon or world history. But when I heard she died, I felt a hole inside and thought about her and lamented any unkindness I might have shown her. And just like when I dreamed about her, I smelled the, cigarettes, smelled the cigarette smoke curling up from the lapels of my old stainless steel suit. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I actually marked all the parts that made me very emotional. Yeah. So, um, no,
1: I, I'm just teasing.
3: No, I, I agree. It's the highest compliment, so that's backhanded compliment. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite chapters, though, is um, Deliverance, and uh, how y- you talk about um, just being so excited to be doing something other than cross-lighting the um, you know, clock. Yeah. And uh, and, and then you go on to describe, sorry, spoiler alert, um, a, a trick. Well, a delusion, a self-delusion that ends up um, kind of being a, a joke played on yeah. by the mission office. Right. Anyway, I, I read that, and what I thought was so outstanding about the, the delivery is your kindness. Because I was getting all worked up, and getting, this guy is out of control. I so, so I think that really also comes through your book. You, you treat, um, I think, all of your characters with a lot of generosity, and and that's. Um, I mentioned you in know, 20 years. It, it, I'm not there yet with some characters. No. <laughs> so I I I think that's really remarkable. Well,
1: thanks. I, I think maybe if I developed that, it was partly through writing the book, because I really had to articulate how I felt and think about how I felt, you know. And so maybe I became more—I I became a little less harsh toward everyone. Like that—that that particular guy who played the trick on me was actually my good friend, and and that's partly why it—it seems like a horrible trick, but but you know, I, I still laughed because I would say stuff like that to him too. You know, we would joke with each other pretty bad. But then some other people that I had a harder time with, the more I thought about it, the more it made me look at, you know, you you know, you get older, you just realize you've got just as many flaws, you know. So maybe writing it helped me to realize that, but thanks.
3: Tell us a little bit about the process you went through in writing the book. Uh, Did you have a list of stories that you wanted to tell, or did you have an outline, or...?
1: I kind of jotted things down that I cared about, yeah, that I thought I'd want to include, and I think originally I had like 38 topics, you know, and you see in the book there are like 20 chapters. So I had a lot more, and because everybody has good stories from their mission, you know, even if you hated your mission, you got some good stories. And then the more I wrote it, and and the trick was to give it some kind of theme, and and the theme kind of came on its own, and I, I... it was organic, you know, it wasn't like I outlined it or something, but I began to realize what the theme was the more I wrote, and, and so it was then pretty easy to leave out some of the chapters that, you know, they're cute stories or whatever, but they didn't have much to do with the theme of the growth, which was how to deal with the failure and feel like a success. So the, the main theme is I redefined success. You know, success was no longer in converting people, but in how I connected to people, and that was all I could come up with to save myself but that's, that's what it felt or, or God saved me, whatever you know, I don't know how much I saved myself but, but that, that's kind of the theme that emerged
0: Two things I think about or, or that strike me are one of them is the storytelling and the other one is the good humored aspect of all of it and that's got to have something to do with your family. So can you tell us about, you know, your mom and your dad? Were they good-humored? Like, you know, was your family culture right. good-humored? Were they storytellers? Yeah. Was there a storytelling tradition in your family?
1: My dad just died a couple of months ago, and so my feelings for him are you know still pretty raw. But he was a really good-hearted guy. <laughs> uh, and not a real joker. We did not have the same kind of sense of humor. That came more from my mother, I think, and, and my mother was always joking, and even a couple of my in-laws say, I think your mother saved the family, you know, because <laughs> my dad is a great, he was a school principal, and he's a great herder of kids. You know, we had eight kids, and he was great at herding us and, and things like that, but he didn't understand kids who didn't want to do what he wanted them to do, <laughs> and so he struggled with that, but my mom had this great light just kind of sense of humor. And her and I, I because I thought about that myself. What did I like to do that? Because my dad wasn't really an articulate guy, you know, and writer a kind of writing kind of guy. Uh, but her grandmother was a great storyteller and I loved listening to her, my great grandmother. So I loved listening to her even when I was a kid. And she would tell stories and she would laugh. And yeah. So there was a lot of laughing and storytelling from I had four grandmas. I never knew a grandpa. Had all these grandmas with wonderful names—Loreen, uh, Hallie, Lorraine, and Margaret. You know, I mean, these these are just great. They all they all told really great stories. So maybe it came from there. But my mom kept things light, yeah. So we were joking a lot. Yeah.
2: Have you ever come across ended memoir of a mission written by a mission president?
1: Have I? I don't think I have. Think I, have re- I think. I think I read something, but it was more in the devotional kind of sense, you know. I, the, the, the first kind of experiential book that you, or the kind of talk in public about missions, it's okay to admit that things were hard, but you didn't really go into too much detail, and then you always ended with the triumph, you know, that it was all worth it, you know, because it was all, and I didn't do that. that. I think that's what was different about this. I just kind of say this is what it was like. And, and you're supposed to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. And I think it's pretty odd. So I think, uh, but I think I've read, I, don't, I think I have read something by a mission president. But I, I felt like it was rich in stories, you know, lots of stories, but kind of the same predictable kinds of tone. Or you know how it's going to end. My, uh, my friend Spencer Fluman, who's in my department, his dad was a mission president. He said his dad kept a good journal of his mission and is really honest, and and you know just to talk with other mission presidents, and some of them, you know, uh, in closets in the fetal position, you know, unable to do this anymore. You don't hear that kind of thing in public, you know, but I'm sure they have as difficult of a time in many cases as, as the missionaries themselves. Yeah.
0: Am I correct that you have three children? and They all serve missions. Yeah, and Was my wife it, did too. You had, right. Was it difficult for them? Did any of them struggle about going on a mission to begin with?
1: Because and, of me. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and did you have a
0: hard time discussing your difficulties with them, or did you just kind of let them go out and experience it on their own?
1: Well, I would talk about it, and I never spoke as if they were going for sure. You know, two sons and one daughter. I just said, if you go on a mission, then this is kind of the thing that might happen, you know. And they all went. My wife was a little more, I think, nudging them, but I, that was the point position I decided to take because I would just feel hypocritical that I felt like they had to kind of make this decision. But that I wanted to tell them what I liked about it too, but I would also tell them some of the hard stories and say, you know, you're going to meet some of this kind of stuff. The, the I thought my sons, they, they seemed to deal a little better with it than I did because I think their expectations were different from mine because I had this, you know, my expectations were always too high for everything, but I think they were a little better that way. But my daughter, I think, had the best experience. She was 22 when she left. She had a degree in religion from Seattle Pacific, so she didn't go to you know a Mormon school. Um, and she was just more mature in so many ways than I was. And she was happy to have a conversation with people about something meaningful. I wasn't, I had to convert them or I felt like it wasn't good enough. And she went to France, you know, right, it was much like Belgium. And she had a great experience because her expectations were so much different. And, and sure, you know, we talked, you know, she majored in religion, so we talked about religion her whole life. We all had that in common, and, and so maybe, maybe I helped her get her expectations lower, but I think it was more her personality. She just, she's just so much better at working with people and just connecting with them, and, and I was, people were there more as a goal for me.
3: One thing I really enjoyed about the book is your description of you know going out and kind of the, the guy-girl relations. I did not serve a mission, but I have been a BYU co-ed, yeah. and I know that we all worshiped guys who yeah. an AP and all these things. But you captured things so well that I've never seen anybody write down before. So that all just came back to you? That wasn't in a journal? No. I think you captured the... I, I think
1: how I said it... How I said it would is different now than it would have been 15 years ago or 30 years ago, but no, the stuff was all there. I, I mean, for good or ill, you know, it, historians tend to have pretty good memories, and it's, it's still not always perfectly accurate. Autobiographical memory is often wrong, even with people who have good memories. But um, that kind of stuff was just burned into me. So you know, I might have distorted it over time. I might have taken on a new shape, but. No, was no I think
3: culturally it really
1: rings true. Yeah, well, I hope so. But it was, no, it was always there. <laughs> and again, for good or ill, you know, it has its advantages and disadvantages. you got to live with it, too. You know? you know, plenty, some of my companions, even I see, we have a reunion every year, and I see them and they go, I don't remember one thing. How do you remember any of this stuff? And I go, well, it isn't fun necessarily to remember everything like that. But
2: Do, do you see now, looking of course you've written your memoir and you served your mission and i can appreciate the low baptizing you know hard-hearted people if you will that you had to teach and work with do you but looking back now especially in europe uh where at least there are quite a few small temples being built and there are larger congregations today do you do you look back and say i was part of that irrespective of if i baptized or not was, I was part of that program of, yeah. of missionary work that was that is essential to growing
1: the overall kingdom. Do you feel any of that? Um, maybe. Um, the thing is, in my particular mission, you know, it only lasted seven years. It was shut down, and <laughs> went from 150 missionaries to 20. Many branches were dissolved. So, I mean, I, I didn't feel any of that, you know, <laughs> steady growth. I think where some of that has happened is in Germany and England, you know, with There was more of a tradition, maybe a little in Spain. Um, Even that, you know, there's a temple in Paris, but I don't know what that's going to mean, you know, really. Um, There's a temple in The Hague, almost never used, because uh, Walter von Bake wrote a great article about this that, you know, there used to be this great sense of community taking the bus to Frankfurt or to Switzerland. You know, they'd all go on the bus. And now that the temple's there in town, you know, you go with your spouse that night you don't see anybody that you know it, it just it's lost a, a lot of its meaning and, and so yeah sure you see some of these signs and, and they look good and, and Elder Didier was from Belgium and so he came to one of our reunions and, I, and somebody asked him about the declining number of missions he said no there are just as many missions now as there were back in the 70's and I was puzzled I, was, I could not believe that was true but then I thought about it of course Eastern Europe you know, all these, but almost every mission has been not cut in half, but enlarged. You know, so they, pretty soon it might be the European mission again. I thought so. I think there are different signals. In some places, it does seem like there is some growth and some hope. And it, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of immigrants. And then in other places, it seems like it's it's declining. So I don't know what I feel. I, I feel mixed. When I go to I go to Europe almost every year for my historical work, and and. Sometimes I can't go to church in Belgium. You know, I, I go to Mass instead because it's just so depressing to go to some of the branches. But then another branch, it's really fun to go. You know, I'll see, I'll see some people that I knew and liked, and I'm glad for them. This, this summer I went, and the branch president that I mentioned who quit going to church after Leif was baptized, he was there. He was there. He he'd he left church for 20 years, and then his wife died, and he went back because his wife had been fed up too, you know. And so he, he was there at church. So that was really fun. Just lots of mixed feelings, I guess. So, for all sorts of young kids on
2: missions now, 18 year olds, um, you know, barely out of high school, how can we encourage more non-ageographical mission storytellings so that they don't go out with these expectations and sort of shatter their souls against yeah. these, these ideas?
1: Yeah, I don't think all of them have the high expectations. I, I think it's more people like me who do, but, but yeah, it would be. Some people say, well, gee, every missionary should read your book before they go on a mission. I go, no, no, this is a mission recovery book. This is, <laughs> this is not a mission help book. They wouldn't understand the depths of this, you know, having not been on a mission. But I do think some of the issues should be raised with them. And instead of just acting, and I call it the one true missionary story. You know, I, I felt like there was one true missionary story, and if I didn't live up to it, I, I was a failure. And what I realized was everybody has to write their own missionary story and develop it and develop it. And so I think, you know, I'd at least give them something to think with about that, Uh, even though, again, they wouldn't understand it until they're there. But uh, I think think just encouraging more, you know, humanitarian, cultural, educational sorts of things. But mostly I would, you know, just, you know, I wish there were a little more cultural training um, because if you read the old missionaries, Parley Pratt's autobiography and these other things, they're all reading the newspapers and, you know, really learning the language instead of just learning it superficially, um, and I think that makes a huge difference in being able to, to communicate, um, so, I don't know, I think some changes have happened, talking to my daughter, some things have changed for the better. But I think the 18-year-old thing is more of a problem than anything, because that one year between 18 and 19, you know, you have that big brain change at 19 that makes a big difference, <laughs> I think. So that that worries me a lot. Yeah.
3: So I, I really enjoyed your, your comparison of your idealistic expectations of your mission compared to what you had in reality, and I related to a lot of those from my mission. Um, one of the things that I found interesting that I never really thought about on my mission was... You talk about your expectations of becoming the senior companion and then the, the district leader, and how yeah. those were markers of a successful missionary, how you had to change your thoughts on that after a while when those ideas, idealistic expectations didn't play out for you. And it made me reflect on my expectations for a mission, and that was something that really crossed my mind, partly because. Those weren't options. wasn't There'd
1: a possibility, a yeah.
3: I mean, I could be a senior companion, right. I could be a trainer, but yeah. that was normally a default because there were only ten sisters on my mission, so it just happened. But um, did you find that in talking to uh, return sister missionaries versus elders that the sisters might have had maybe different expectations because?
1: Yes, exactly because of that, because there wasn't that possibility, but that's going to change now. Right. And now there are these positions that women can, and, and we'll see how, you know, if this makes a difference in, in, in their own aspirations and expectations they you know half the applicants now, almost half the applicants are female and so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they don't have the same kinds of pressures, you know, to be in these kinds of positions or if even a musical is made about sister missionaries you know? it, may, it may be so ubiquitous that, you know, it might happen to them too. No, thanks, that's a good question
0: well, it's time to call it to a close, but I'm sure Craig will be happy to answer questions if you have them afterwards and and his book signed. But thank you so much.
1: Thanks a lot. Uh.